Hello, 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 hello. So nice to be back at Leicester Square Theatre. We did take the show on the road, but uh, had to perform on some rather shabby erections. So we are glad to be just giving you an early hint of how this thing is going to go. <laughs> Um, last time we were on this stage, Liz Truss was Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak was out in the cold. Nicola Sturgeon was unassailable. And Nadine Doris did not have a high-quality chat show. <laughs> so keep trying, babe. Anything can happen. <laughs> right, let's meet the panel. First up, making her Ogwan live debut. It's former Labour Spad and current Times Radio host Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. <laughs> Next to me, it's Podmasters contributing editor and host of the fabulous new podcast, Jam Tomorrow, Roz Taylor. Hi, Roz. <laughs> and finally, the man who single-handedly gives this podcast its explicit rating. <laughs> I, columnist, co-host of Origin Story and author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, Ian Dunt. <laughs> so, on tonight's show, as UK politics caves in on itself, who will be the next UK Prime Minister to walk into number 10? Will it be Man of the People Rishi? None of the people care? Or High Commissioner Takuru from Kepler-62e, currently trying to paddle the remains of his balloon craft to the Lake Huron shore. We also have a quiz on the most bizarre consequences of Brexit and a parlour game on the most batshit things said in Parliament. And in the second half of the show, it's sad, so sad, it's a sad, sad situation. And it's getting more and more absurd. But why does rejoin seem to be the hardest word? <laughs> right. In May, it'll be 13 years since the Tories took over. What did we think back then about how this would go? Did we foresee a Johnson premiership? Nick Clegg transformation into a California tech bro? <laughs> Brexit, a pandemic, war? Liz Truss, I, I didn't mean to put those in a list like that. Um, we are due some good news, I think. Labour is still riding pretty high in the polls amid rumours it is about to rebrand as Fanta-centrist. Um, <laughs> Bolsonaro is gone. Democrats did better than expected in the midterms. And Eurovision is in Liverpool this year. Because let's face it, you weren't going to host it by winning it. So who would be fool enough to predict what happens next? Welcome, panellists. <laughs> Aisha, I have to come to you first. Nicola Sturgeon seemed to take everyone by surprise when she announced her resignation today. It's been months, maybe years, since such a huge story broke without any leak or hint of of it being in the works. What brought this on politically, do you think? I mean, it really was kind of out of, of nowhere. I mean, there's been a lot of people who wanted Nicola Sturgeon to go for a long time. 
But she was giving off a vibe that, you know, she was pretty unassailable, as you said. Yes, her poll ratings had dropped, but they were still pretty enviable compared to her counterparts. So it really did come out of the blue. In fact, I was on TV this morning when the news broke and I was on the Jeremy Vine show about to do a really in-depth discussion on whether <laughs> UFOs exist. <laughs> I know, I know. And uh, to be honest, like, I think I'd probably answer, you know, the question, do you think aliens exist? Yes, compared to do you think Nicola Sturgeon is about to resign? Like that's that's kind of where things. So it really did um, take everybody by surprise. I think there's a number of of reasons. I think it kind of pains me to say it, but I do think this sort of gender reform bill has been a factor in it because it did draw a, a lot of ire from people. For me, I kind of feel sad that that has contributed to her sort of downfall. I think if you're going to take Nicola on, take Nicola Sturgeon on, the big issues that she's wanted to fight on, I feel quite uncomfortable about a sort of culture war bringing down a big figure in Mm. British politics who you might disagree with profoundly, but she's a decent politician. You know, she believes in, in a cause. But I think ultimately it was that cause that made her decide to step down because I think the truth is she knew, and I think this... It's kind of gender where I sort of kind of brought quite a lot of this to the fore. The independence cause felt like it was beginning to run out of steam. And I think she sort of knew in her heart of hearts that things were getting quite difficult. The Supreme Court, of course, had like blocked her being able to have a referendum. She's normally a very astute politician. I think she made quite a rash um, announcement when she said she was going to make the next general election like a de facto referendum mm-hmm. and none of her supporters could really explain what that meant you know was that just going to be one line in a manifesto which didn't take into account you know health and education and climate change and all these other things so I think that's the main reason why she's decided to go and I think she's decided it's going to be really difficult to sort of get independence to move forward there's a lot of division within her party about what's the best means of getting independence do you do a wildcat referendum do you try and kind of do another sort of legal route I think so there's a lot of division and I think she just thought right I just want to leave on my own terms but I'll tell you something everyone people are a bit like oh it's it is such a shame she's gone she is a great I think she was a great political leader I disagreed with her in independence but I thought she's a great political leader but she knows that politics is a blood sport. And I don't know if you all remember when Jo Swinson lost her seat in 2019 and there was that picture of her going, yes, kind of thing. So I think, you know, she, she does know that politics is, is a blood sport. And I think she kind of knows that it's going to be very hard for her to advance her agenda. Who are talked of as the sort of runners and riders to take over? Does anyone stick out? So there's a couple of names in the free. Um, Kate Forbes, who is the current finance minister, is is a real rising star. She's very, very bright. She's you know quite a sort of protege of, of Nicola Sturgeon. But Kate Forbes is, I think, a lot of people might find difficulties with some of her views. She's she's very Christian. She's sort of got views which are quite kind of not very keen on abortion and some kind of like healthcare things like that. So I do think that there's some, you know, there's some issues with her. It's actually said that one of the reasons why they kind of try to get the gender reform stuff through so fast was that Kate Forbes wasn't around. I think she's on maternity leave and that was a kind of a one of a I know awkward. <laughs> like they're trying to like nah, nah, nah. and um Hamza Youssef is another name that's sort of in the in the free. He's you know quite an energetic um you know young charismatic minister. 
Angus Robertson is a is a big name as well. He of course was in he Westminster. Used to be Westminster leader. Used to be Westminster. He's very popular. He's been doing a lot of um, constitutional work. There's also like old names floating around, like John Swinney and such. But my, my sense is. Nicola Sturgeon, and along with Alex Salmon, of course, their falling out is a big part of, you know, Mm, all of mm. this as well. They were such big figures. They were such big, dominant figures. You know, they were the architects of this very successful transformation from the SNP being this kind of weird sort of underground project to to being this, like, 20 years they've basically been in, in, in power. And I think Nicola Sturgeon, someone described her, she, she did my um, Edinburgh show and she was with me for about an hour and a half. Amazing. Even people who were unionists in the room who completely disagreed with her said she's like a political athlete, the kind of command of the room and her brief and all of that sort of stuff. There is nobody that comes even close to her level of fluency, persuasiveness, you know, mastery of, of, of the brief, her ability to kind of, you know, dominate an audience. So I think with her going it's going to be a really big blow to the independence cause because they don't have that big figure. And I think even though she's chosen to go on her own terms today, I think she's kind of helped give the keys to Keir Starmer for a majority. Ian, on that, where does this... One person going... (laughs) (laughs) Where does this leave the future of the the Scottish independence movement, do you think? No, I agree. I think it's going to be harder for them now. And part of the reason for that is that she probably is the most accomplished political figure on these islands for the last sort of 10, 15 years. Um, it's kind of interesting to sort of think about why that is. I mean, part of the reason, I really think this is sort of underpriced, um, but it's very, very rare in political life here, is that uh, she reads books. Um, she can read and she's a politician? Wow. It's fucking incredible. So... Like, occasionally she does these sort of photos of, like, her bookshelves. And her bookshelves, almost any sort of Westminster politician you you talk to, if they read a book, it's going to be a political memoir. It's going to be about events that have just happened, Brexit, you know, or whatever, or this election. Or it's going to be, at at the most sort of esoteric, it's going to be a history book about something in the 20th century. Clement Attlee, Churchill, Mm -hmm. 80% of those fucking history books. You look at her bookshelves, it's full of fiction. And it's the fucking, it, these are the bookshelves of someone that loves books. Like each of a series are put together and you're just like, oh, you're an actual book person. She is someone who has maintained the capacity to have imagination about other people's lives and to care about things that is not just politics. I think when you saw it in that speech today, when she was, I mean, her argument, which by the way, I basically took as, as she said it, was basically like, I want to have a fucking life. <laughs> like at some point I just wanted, this is just eating it up. And it's all, you know, it's been quite a while now and I just want to go and have a life. That, that book thing is part of the appeal. It means that she's a genuine human being with the capacity for empathy and imagination. And you look around, whether it's Westminster, whether it's any other devolved assemblies, you see very few people with those kind of skills. And that's why I think the SP are in quite a lot of trouble now. It's long been said, um, although I disagree actually, that Labour can't win without Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, do you agree with Aisha? Is this a gift to Starmer and. and- yeah, yeah. So look, our political life is, is massively worse by virtue of her not being in it. However, the political situation is massively improved because almost everything she proposed politically, from my perspective, was fucking catastrophic. I mean, she was talking about something that would just shatter my sense of national identity. She made it very hard. If you think about like 
just think about it electorally, just these great big hubs of progressive, pro-immigration, left-wing economically voters in London, in the major cities, unable to sort of hook up with the voters in Scotland, for instance. I mean, that is a massive problem with nationalism. And that problem has not gone away. It does not mean that it's going to be okay. It's perfectly possible, you know, that people's sense of uh, of, of these questions in Scotland is not completely dependent on her. But Labour right now have the chance to get a hearing, I think, in Scotland. And they have a chance to get a hearing against an SNP leader who's almost certainly going to be of a lower quality than she was. So that massively improves their chances at the next election. Yeah. Um, Rose, whatever one thinks of Sturgeon's politics or the cause of independent, she continues to set the bar in terms of behaviour, even in her resignation, sort of from a position of strength and dignity, while we watch people like Johnson and Trust just refuse to take their exit cue until some sort of shepherd's crook comes and drags them by, by the neck. Um, so will that aspect of it be missed? W- will there be a degradation of what we ex- expect from politicians by not having someone on the stage that is actually competent and good at oratory? Yes, I mean, it was, it was quite refreshing, wasn't it, to see someone who wasn't leaving office in disgrace or <laughs> in failure, you know. We, we did... I was stunned. I didn't know what was going on. I know. And, and on her own terms, and able to set out a very reasoned explanation as to why she was going. And, you know, I thought her insights into the polarisation of politics and why it was making it so hard for her to cut through were in many ways spot on. They didn't go quite far enough because they couldn't go quite far enough because linking into what Ian was saying, the problem for the SNP under Nicola Sturgeon is and was always going to be until Scotland became independent was that you have to show that Scotland is not doing as well as it could because it's not independent yet and yet at the same time you also have to prove that the SNP can, you know, lead, can lead and, and, and show what a yes, great country yes, it yes. could be. And that catch-22 that she was constantly trying to overcome, she eventually fell foul of. And that, you know, as, as you say, was, was the result of nationalism. I mean, it was an interesting thing as well during the pandemic. I thought, I thought it was interesting that she, she waited until after the pandemic because the pandemic was a time when Scotland was able to carve out some quite different positions and to effectively you know there was a border and the rules were different on one side of the border from the other and she was able to present herself as a far more serious politician during that time than Johnson was able to do but that era not hard in fairness no but that era is now over and so you know it, it gets it's got more difficult again to show how Scotland can be different without being independent also, can I just pick up another thing, which I think there is sometimes a wee bit of a disconnect between how people see Nicola Sturgeon, particularly in London, compared to how people see the SNP in, in Scotland. And I think one of the things that people did get kind of quite, and were becoming increasingly frustrated about, was that there's lots of things, people sometimes sort of look at Nicola Sturgeon and think she's some sort of progressive icon in it, and Scotland is a sort of progressive dream country. There are loads of issues in Scotland 
in the same way that there's issues here, you know, you look at lots of things, the, the NHS, educational attainment, life expectancy metrics, you know, even basic things like ferry contracts for like the islands and highlands, which are really, really important drugs, deaths, things like that. And I think sometimes there was there was definitely a growing feeling in Scotland, which was, hang on, if you want to run this country and you want to be completely independent, why don't you run the country really well with, with what you've got? And I think that the sort of always blaming Westminster for everything... I think people were starting to get quite tired of that. And during the pandemic, she was much better than Boris Johnson. I mean, to be honest, I've got pairs of tights that would be better than Boris Johnson, let's be quite honest. But what was interesting is a lot of the stuff she actually did was not that different. And if you look at what happened in care homes, there's a massive scandal in what happened in care homes in Scotland. People from the sort of health minister let people go straight from hospitals into care homes. So I think sometimes there is a slightly over-romanticised sort of version of, of, and I think she was a brilliant politician, as I said, like very, very good communicator. But sometimes I think, you know, you have to look at sort of the evidence and scratch the surface. Sure, it, was sure. not, I mean, it was not all a kind of, u- it, like, d- utopia. Because it is quite a difficult circle to square, you know, to sort of be better in every respect without getting any more money and, and still claim that um, we could be even better if we left. It's a, it's a difficult balancing act. Um, Ros, is there a danger that, as soon as I heard about the resignation, my first thought was, oh, God, she's doing an Ardern. Um, is there a danger that Ardern and Sturgeon are sort of the beginning of a pattern that sees capable people bow out of a sector that has become really degraded and leave it to people like Truss and Johnson. Yeah, there absolutely is. And I think this is really important, and it speaks very much to what she was saying about polarised era. Politicians like Liz Truss and Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are incredibly thick-skinned. Yeah, how, how could they be otherwise, given they have be- how they have behaved? Mm. They have no capacity for self-reflection. And that is what has enabled them to succeed for a while until they became you know, what they did and who they were became intolerable. And there is a risk that people will stop going into politics if they feel that they just haven't got thick enough skins to deal with with the current climate mm-hmm. and how polarised and how unpleasant it may be. And I think this is a particularly going to be a problem for a younger generation of politicians who sometimes owe their success and own their renown to social media and yet may find themselves at the mercy of it. This is where I think Keir Starmer as well is is doing well to effectively try to float above social media and not to pay too much attention to it. To have people working for him who are, sure, but not to actually dabble in that himself. Because you have to rise above it, I think, in order to do anything and to achieve anything in modern politics. Mm. Ian, on on the subject of adieus and comebacks, um, Nadine Doris has announced her timely retirement from frontline politics and Lee Anderson was announced as deputy leader of the Tory party. Is, is this the pleasure pain principle in action? Well not really because I think Dean Doris is going to find her way into the House of Lords which as no need to take a straw poll in this room <laughs> we, 
which, um, despite the fact that no one recognises it, does incredibly important, valuable work. And the more times you stuff it full of people like that, what you do is disable it from doing that work, revising legislation. And secondly, you demean its reputation to the point where eventually people get rid of it. And if people get rid of the Lords, we are all completely fucked. If you have the House of Commons without anything to hold it back, you are in serious, serious trouble. It's only clowns. Only clowns in charge under that kind of constitutional setup. You need grown-ups around somewhere. They happen to be in the House of Lords, or at least they were. I, I don't Nadine think Doris anyone is suggesting there. we go monocameral. No, you, we're not going to have that argument. I mean, Naomi came out monocameralist the other day, and I was like, what the fuck is going on? It's just absolutely unbelievable. Anyway, we're not going to... Anyway, no. We had fun. Um... The, I, I honestly think the Lee Anderson, and as I said this today on Twitter, this, I've, I've always had a problem with the name Anderson ever since I saw The Matrix. Because as soon as you say it in my head, I have to be like, Mr. Anderson. And so every time I read his fucking name, that's what's going through my head. Um, he is, he's like kind of a fascinating and important guy who I think is, a bit, is quite similar actually in this way to Frank Mansoir, our old foe. Which is that, again, you think, why have you succeeded? And it's not despite the stupidity, this is the crucial thing we have to understand, it's specifically because he's a fucking moron that he succeeds. You say moronic things, performatively mean-spirited things, you get more coverage, you get talked about more on social media, you get invited more onto television, you raise your profile, and by raising your profile, you become talismanic to that wing of the party, which is now pretty much the whole of the fucking Tory Tory parliamentary party, which is just reactionary clowns. Um, and then you're quite useful to the leadership. So, you know, Sunak gets into a position, OK, I'm going to do a reshuffle, which is basically a sort of technocratic stitching together of various ministries of the room. But on the other hand, here's your clown, guys. Here's Lee Anderson, right? So it worked very well for him. And as long as we have that funnel, that, that, that hierarchical system of you can succeed by being vicious and idiotic, we will keep on getting guys like that rising to very senior positions. Aisha, um, to wrap up the entrances and exits segment of the conversation, Starmer was asked today whether there was a way back for Corbyn uh, to stand as a Labour candidate in the next election. The answer was, for once, surprisingly clear. Um, (laughs) Are are we looking at a new phase of the Labour civil war, do you think, or, or has... No, I think we're looking at the sort of the end of it, really, because this Labour civil war has been going on for a long, long time. And particularly since Keir Starmer got in and started to sort of distance himself from the 2019 uh, election losing manifesto that many people think we should still be clinging to, (laughs) even though we literally gifted Boris Johnson a massive historic majority. And remember, he suspended Jeremy Corbyn uh, a while ago when that initial Equality and Human Rights Commission report came out and and Jeremy Corbyn sort of doubled down on on what he said and he just wouldn't make a fulsome, unqualified apology. Remember, he then went into the, um, not the conference before, but the year before, he went in and did a lot of battle with, the I guess, the hard left of the party in terms of really quite nerdy but important rule changes within the party, in terms of taking back the sort of levers of control from how selections are 
are run, how people can be deselected or not be deselected. Um, a lot of work has gone on from behind the scenes from him to get control of the National Executive Committee as well and make sure his people are in it. So this is, have, has been quite a kind of drawn out civil war in the background. And I think what's interesting about um, Keir Starmer is he's not, and this will come as no surprise, he's not a terribly passionate individual. <laughs> He is that kind of very sober, very, very calm. I mean, I know him quite well. He's a man in politics who is remarkably ego-free. So if somebody says something like nasty about him, he doesn't go mad and be like, right, we've got, I've got to like kind of punish that person or, you know, or, or same way if someone lavishes praise on him, he's like, oh my God, he's, you know, this person's not my best friend. He's very cool-headed and very ruthless. So he's not a show-and-tell sort of person. He gets on with things behind the scene. And I think he's very quietly ruthless so this whole business with jeremy corbyn this whole business of sort of taking on the 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 kind of corbynistas the momentums the hard left and the party this has been a battle that's been going on for two years behind the scenes and really today him coming out and saying nope you're not standing this is a sort of the kind of end game of it of it it's a sort of declaration of confidence that they've been defanged and remember his 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 kind of big pledge one of his first pledges was the parties under new management. And I think kind of today is sort of closing that circle mm. a bit. Ros, there's been a wave of business leaders, uh, including former CBI heads and even Tory donors, now saying that Labour is the party of business. There was really quite a notable um, a bunch of them the last few weeks. Is it Labour that has changed so much since 2019 that they're a very plausible alternative? Or is it more that the Tories have made themselves utterly unattractive to business? Well, both parties have changed themselves since 2019 in this regard. I mean, you cannot imagine Sunak saying, fuck business, can you? I mean, it's just, you know, business is his, he is business. Um, uh, he's Mr. Business. Uh, Do you work in finance? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, there's no no greater lover of business than Rishi Sunak. Um, but you know, the reason that potatoes Boris, with that. <laughs> the reason that Boris Johnson was able to get away with saying something so stupid and crass was because he was, uh, you know, he was against Jeremy Corbyn, and um, it was a different environment entirely. But what we're seeing now is a business community who look at the government and see them trying to manage decline, see them desperately trying to get inflation under control, which, you know, seeing a slight improvement today, it's down to only 10.1%. Wow, guys, you know. Um, Manage decline. They're they're stealing hotel soaps and unscrewing the sort of seashell ashtrays. (laughs) It's, it's, you know, uh, he's, he's in the long grind of trying to make Britain remotely credible again. And they know that he won't have time to do that before the next election. And so naturally, their gaze turns towards the like, you know, the, the party that's way ahead in the polls and that, that whose policies, most importantly, they have a chance of influencing. Because if you get in with Labour and you've got the ear of Labour, that's a great thing when it comes to making, you know, making your case. And I think that's the real, the real impulse behind it. They can see who's on the winning side and they back in the winners. Ian, looking into the distant future, uh, both main parties could be said to lack cohesion. The Tories are trying to keep people like Lee Anderson and Caroline Noakes sort of in the same tent. Um, meanwhile, Keir Starmer seems to be taking actual Labour voters for granted and courting the sorts of people 
who thought Johnson would be a laugh. Um, I understand it. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that's what is going on. The electoral system is rigged to prevent pluralism. Can anything be done within it? I mean, you're trapped by the remorseless logic of first-past-the-post, which is not really about counting votes. It's about achieving the most efficient geographical distribution of your vote. And that requires very particular tactics at very particular times. And in Keir Starmer's situation right now, he's going to bank, you know, wet cosmopolitan liberals like me because I'm going to fucking vote for him. It doesn't, you know, I'm going to do that. It's going to surprise a lot of people, but that's what's going to happen. He's going to triangulate against people like, just like Blair did. And then you're going to appeal, you know, somewhere else where you know you need to win. You're going to do it. So the question then is, what happens if you reform the system and you have electoral reform? And that, you know, I, I'm pro that. I want that very, very much. But we should also recognize what follows from that, because then you don't have to have these broad churches anymore. What you find whenever you do electoral reform is you typically end up with about seven parties. You get hard right, center right, couple of centrist parties, center left. And then, uh, you know, a far left and a green party. Basically, that's how it sort of shakes out. Now, we should accept what that means, of course, is that someone's going to target us much harder. I'll be much more happy. He won't have to say anything about Brexit's a really good idea, really. They're going to be like, no, it's a shit show. Vote for me. And I'll fucking give them the vote. Um, <laughs> but we should see the flip side as well, which is, yes, in some of those red wall areas, you can find that the hard right parties might do very, very well. And we just need to accept it. You know, there's no point. We should not play that game where we pretend that that is not a thing that will happen because it will happen because it happens any time you have electoral, you know, you have proportional representation, it's going to go out that way. I still support it. I still think it's the right idea. But we should recognise that there's a flip side to the really frustrating triangulation and pragmatism that we have to see at the moment. And that's that when you get very, very specific, you also get very, very specific things that you really don't fucking like. Um, Aisha, as our resident xenomorph expert, <laughs> seeing as we are looking into the future, uh, the US has now shot down a fourth flying object... Um, and a top general has refused to rule out the involvement of aliens, although I suspect he may mean Mexicans. Um, <laughs> w- will this video go viral as, as, you know, the last hurrah they had before they welcomed the new overlords? <laughs> I wish the overlords would hurry up and get here because we really sort of do. <laughs> we're we're ready to wear Stockholm syndrome. We're ready for you, overlords. Oh, I have literally, absolutely sort of not this. I find the story just so completely, completely bizarre. And I just, you know, I'm at the stage where I'd be quite open to aliens coming down. You know, I really, if they could, we have got job vac, we've got labor shortages. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm open. This, this alien rubbish really hacks me off, I have to say. I'm, <laughs> like everything space-related, it's just such a massive distraction. I know there are space lovers in this... In this uh, it is such a massive distraction from the real problems that face us. And the idea that if aliens came to this, to this world, that they would have and do, be doing anything that we could remotely recognise and relate to, I, I, I find risible. But the whole thing is just risible. I mean, if you were going... <laughs> If you were going to to invade another planet, she's off on one. And even the notion of invasion, you know, is is is, is an Earth concept. Um, if you were going to do that, would you would you do it with crappy balloons that you can shoot down in a with with a shitty missile? No, you would I'd just like. No. Maybe they're not trying to invade. Maybe they're just trying to go, here's a balloon. Oh. Here's another balloon. Oh. Like some crappy, like some Banksy painting. 
Um, Sorry. Okay. Let, I don't know. Do, do you want to continue? No. Let, let, let's ask everyone now, um, briefly, what, name one thing that gives you hope for the future. Um, let's go with you, Aisha. The, the aliens are coming. Like, I was really like, hi. <laughs> oh, um... Oh, I, I look. I do think that we are. I don't know, like ten feet because you know, uh, history says that. Oh my god! Know, are you going like, to say the thing? Are you going to say the thing I'm that no one is allowed to say? That, that that we might. No, we, I'm just going to say. I think things. We might, we might get a Labour government. <laughs> I'm not being that far. I'm just saying. I think things are going to change a lot. I think the public have what, just. Ah. <laughs> oh, um. I just think change is coming. I think change is coming. And there's going to be... Actually, it's not going to be... like We've got to be really honest as well about what change might might look like to be kind of realistic. But I do feel that, you know, I've got so many Tory MPs getting in contact with me just going, um, uh, how do I get a television show? <laughs> how about you, Ian? What's your answer? Just like, fuck off. Yeah. Stop coming here and taking our jobs. <laughs> I suppose it's the sort of it's it's the populism started dying out on the basis of its popularity, which which feels like tremendously reassuring. And I don't think to take from that of like oh the public are suddenly you know they've all become you know rationalist liberal who are all pro immigration and anti borders. And I get that that's not the case, but I remember watching like lots of American sort of commentators trying to figure out what the fuck had happened with Boris Johnson when he left. And they're going, oh, it's so weird, right? Like, they don't, they don't really have any constitutional restraints like we do, but the system has nothing to do with the system. It's like, he lost his base. Your guy didn't lose his base. You know, Trump kept that base. He went out of power. He could just poison the system from outside. Johnson lost the base. And that is basically what happens when the populist becomes unpopular. And the truth is, they fuck off then. You defeat them then. And on that basis, it gives you a lot of faith, I think, in just a fundamental recalibration back to reason and a more objective political debate than the one that we've had over the last few years. Not perfect, not enough to be complacent, blah, blah, blah. But just the fact that that's how it happened, that does make me happy at night. Uh, this, this show is unrecognisable today. How about you, Rose? Yeah, it's, it's, a new, it's a new era of enlightenment. No, it isn't really, but, but it's just so much better. It's so much better than the Boris Johnson show. I mean, I know there were parts of it that were entertaining, and that is undoubted, you know, and, and, and there was this kind of collective, oh, my God, what has he done now? But, and, and, and there was a certain solidarity to be had from that, from that feeling. But ultimately, it is so great not to just be talking about the personalities of vainglorious idiots the entire time, and that we are starting to diagnose what is more fundamentally wrong with Britain and the way that we have let property prices go stratospheric and the massive effects that has and to see what has happened to the NHS and to have better conversations about that than 350 million pound a week is going to fix it. Yeah. It, it it's just it that is that is a wonderful thing to have happened and it also you know there is this kind of almost pregnant feeling I don't know if you the, 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 this, the future is full of possibility now and I do like that feeling even though obviously we have a crap government 
things can change and things will change, as Aisha says. There's light at the end of the tunnel, although, as Pratchett says, occasionally that light is a flamethrower. <laughs> Right, shall we have a little quiz? I am going to give you some consequences of Brexit. Your mission is to fish out the red herrings from the legitimate fishing quotas. Sorry, Rose. I'm properly up for this. Um, (laughs) In an interview with the Mail 2021... Jennifer Arcuri revealed that she was in the room when Johnson wrote his famous two columns about Brexit. And according to Arcuri, the opportunity to reform the UK's child support laws was what led him to back leave. There There are two things going on here, aren't there? Because, you know, is it true objectively, or is it true that Jennifer Arcuri said it? Yes. And, and those things are different, aren't Okay. They? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you think she said it, but it's not true? Or she didn't say it, I but it is I seem to remember it's true. partly true, and she claimed that he was drafting. I don't remember the bit about child support. That almost seems too crass, even for Johnson. Doesn't it? Yeah. How about you, Aisha? I don't think I believe it. Okay. don't think Ian? I believe her. It just sounds so grottily pointlessly, banally stupid. I guess it's probably true. (laughs) (laughs) It's false. In 2019, when Theresa May was in Brussels for EU negotiations, BBC News accidentally used footage of the Battle of Britain over the story. True. Sure. False. It is true. <laughs> and rather magnificent. <laughs> are, you, are you fucking taking the points or are you, is anyone... Is this yeah, even yeah, a yeah. game? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm keeping score in my head. I'm very, very intelligent. <laughs> um, <laughs> after Brexit... He's very good with numbers. He's like Liz. He's very good with numbers. Very like... Uh, He's Rishi Sunak's dream. <laughs> when did you stop studying maths, Alex? After Brexit, (laughs) legitimate cannabis prescriptions from countries like the Netherlands are harder to verify in the UK. Not having foreseen this obstacle, Leave.eu's Andy Wigmore abandoned politics and started a new life as a hemp farmer. Well, that can't be true because it suggests that someone in any way connected with the Leave campaign would have changed their behaviour by virtue of being wrong. (laughs) <laughs> so it's false it must be false yeah I think it's false yeah it's just it's not a levy thing hemp absolutely it? true <gasps> what fuck off what <laughs> absolutely true what, what? The, the Wigmore bit D- all of it have you been smoking <laughs> <laughs> what only vaping um, <laughs> due to a loophole In a 2010 EU directive on the protection of animals used for scientific purposes, it was legal for shepherds to drive their sheep across Tower Bridge. But if Jacob Rees-Mogg's proposed bonfire of EU regulations goes through, they would have to be taken over by vehicles for the first time 
in over 500 years. I think this is true. No, it can't be because, you know, EU laws haven't been around for 500 years. The law, if the pre-existing law is older than the EU, then how could that be the case? It was a loophole. Didn't you say loophole? I read this statement. <laughs> this is not a Q&A. <laughs> I don't know what sort of shilly-shallying you got used to with Dorian, but I run, I run a tight ship. Thought you, thought you used to be a lawyer, Alex. True or false? I don't know. Fucking pick one. I think it's true. I think it's true. False. And you say false because... False. False. Very good working out. As recently as 2018, the UK imported 3,000 sperm samples from Scandinavia alone. More than half of it was Danish semen. (laughs) Behave yourselves. But if customs arrangements aren't properly organised, our supply of Nordic jizz will <laughs> behave yourself. Will will dry up. <laughs> True or false? Can I just say I think stories are relevant because we've got Boris Johnson in this country, so you know, like. True or false? True. Yeah, I'll go with true. True. Yeah, I mean it's it's. You don't, you don't want foreign, foreign jizz, do you? I mean, that's the whole point of, whole point of I Brexit. I produce foreign jizz. I, I have news for you. But, you know, the principle of Brexit was that foreign jizz would no longer come over here. And... Yeah. Well, it, it is true, and I can tell you that a UK national sperm bank was launched, but it attracted just nine donors in its, in its first year. So... You don't want our jizz? We'll take it elsewhere. <laughs> Brexit Britain wants a veto on European influence. There's currently a private member's bill in the works to correct a reference by the British Board of Film Classification to Mario and Luigi in the upcoming Super Mario film being Italian rather than American Italian. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> True or false? It's just like a series of words. Let's have it. <laughs> yes, that's what sentences are, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to interpret them. <laughs> Come on, true or false? Uh, true, true. False. False, I guess. False. Last. Suella Braverman. Dominic Raab's Police Crime Sentencing and Court Act. False. Contained a passage in its draft form on excessive swearing, which included a severity chart with level 10 containing words like plonker and burk, not actionable, to level 1, which I will get Ian Dunn to read out in, in next week's extra segment for Patreon backers only. So, come on. It's false. It's, it's false. I've read this bill for a, for a piece I did for somebody. And uh, I'm sure that wasn't there. I'm pretty sure. But we're talking before it went to the Lords for the first time in a draft. That's just too absurd. Too okay. absurd. I just think this might be possible. It's false. <laughs> so, the scores at the end of that are Ian Dunt is on three points. 
Roz is on two points, and Aisha wins with 1,407. Because it's her debut. Way. Don't be mean. Don't be mean. So that's all for part one. While you relax, please enjoy the live debut of the Podmaster Suite. All of our theme tunes weaved together. Stretch those hamstrings, fetch some drinks, and feel free to tweet how magnificent we are at Dorian and Naomi. <laughs> We'll see you in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs>